Our Father in heaven, we thank you as we've just been singing that you are indeed gracious and compassionate. You're slow to anger, you're abounding in love. Thank you that you're kind. And thank you that you speak. And so as Jesus preaches to his people, would you unstop our deaf ears to see what he's saying to us? In his name we pray. Amen. I take it these are verses for people like us living in times like this. Or perhaps even, verse 3, this is a verse today for people like us living in times like this. Whether at the national or international or personal level, there's a whole lot of change going on. It's, it's a storm time. It's a time of uncertainty, a time of change, a time of unrest. A time potentially of anxiety, a time of struggle, a time of of worry. In fact, it's shaped something of our service this morning as we've sung of our sovereign God who reigns. But you know, very often the thing is, when anxiety and stress and worry come, well, so so follows the temptation either to panic at one end or, or conversely at the other end to take control. Both, of course, interestingly, springing from the fact that we think God's not got it covered. We forget he's sovereign. And so in the midst of the storm, when when life is pretty complicated and everything looks out of control and there's unrest and there's uncertainty, the the desire or or ability to maintain a humble or quiet heart aren't necessarily at the top of our to-do list, actually. We can't think quite straight to do that. So as we work through these verses, these next few weeks over the summer, um, from verse 3 through to 12, I think we'll see they are gold dust. Not just in general Christian living terms, and of course they are timeless, but I wonder particularly for life now. Particularly when there is so much uncertainty, particularly when we are tempted to panic or to take control. When we're tempted to not trust God, to do things our way. Now if you were here last week, Matthew very helpfully kicked off the series for us, unpacking something of the the palpable anticipation as King Jesus walks onto the scene. Here he is. The the people of God are living in, in a world of unrest and confusion. They're living in the land that God promised to them, but the the Romans are there in charge. And there are different groups with different ideas amongst the people of God trying to work out how they find their freedom. Do you remember he said that on the one hand, you've got the revolutionaries and the zealots trying to grab freedom for themselves, a military coup. Let's do it by force and violence. And at the other end, you've got the religious leaders seeking to bring in the kingdom through moral efforts. And so Jesus comes. And Matthew, the gospel writer, has gone to to great care to try and show us why we should listen to him. Why he's worth listening to. The 
Back in chapter 1 of Matthew, the genealogy. Do you remember he's the promised son of Abraham, the one who had blessed the world. He's the one from the line of David who's going to rule forever. Or in chapter 4, he's the true people of God where the numbers generation doubted. They didn't trust God. So Jesus does. And he's already started his ministry. Have a look down at 4 verse 17. He's already started. So he started to preach. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And then verse 23 as well, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and illness among the people. Here is a ministry of both word and deed. And the disciples are already starting to gather around him. Ears are pricked up. Who is this person? We need to hear what he's got to say. They're sat at his feet in chapter 5 like disciples around a rabbi. They're on the mountain as if, it's, if he's a new Moses coming to expound a new law for a new people. There is this palpable anticipation. And what's it going to be, King, King Jesus? What's your plan? What do you think? How is this revolution going to happen? Where do we start to take back the kingdom for God's people again? And he begins, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Oh. Okay. It's not, it's not quite what I was hoping for, to be honest. It's the Christmas morning scenario where you open that presence you've been longing for, you've anticipated it for six months, You've imagined what it is. It's not quite what you were after, actually. Jesus, blessed are the poor in spirit. Are you sure? Is that what you meant to say? And yet what he seeks to do as he, as he lists these beatitudes, these blessings for us, and not so much list eight different types of people, that we might find in the world. He's not talking about a poor in spirit person over there and a, a mourner over there and a persecuted person over there. He, this is what the people of God look like. He's describing discipleship if you're to be one who follows Jesus. If Jesus is the king, here is what the kingdom looks like. Here's how we spot people in that kingdom. And we'll come on to this later as well, but it's worth just saying is what Jesus is doing in this sermon, the descriptions that he's making, the people he's outlining are in a sense nothing new. There's nothing particularly extraordinary about this sermon. He's, he's simply drawing together verses and themes and ideas and concepts from the Old Testament that had always been there and gathering them into one person, maybe an overlooked thread of theology. But he's pointing them out to us. He's saying you can't miss these things. These aspects matter. So for example, this beatitude for this morning, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, many commentators say is a reworking of Psalm 34 and verse 18. If, if you want to flip to it in your Bibles, you'd be very welcome. It's page 561. Take your fingers for a walk. Um, but Psalm 34 was written by King David as he was being hounded by the king of Gath, by Abimelech. And King David is utterly surrounded. He is looking down the barrel of the gun. He is completely hopeless and completely helpless. And so he declares how helpless he was at this stage, that he cannot save himself. And God rescued him. 
And so verse 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. David knew his complete and utter inability to rescue himself. He knew he was up against the wall. He knew he was bankrupt. He knew he couldn't do it. And so Jesus takes that verse and draws that into the thread of what people in his kingdom look like. Even taking it as the foundation for the sermon and of all that's to come. So let's get into it. We'll kind of do it in two halves, and I'm just going to slowly walk through, trying to explain what each verse means and what it doesn't mean, and show something of what it means for us as we go out this week, as we seek to live for this king. What does it mean to be blessed? I think it's important to say it's a stark contrast to what the world thinks being blessed means. I think the word is used surprisingly often in everyday speech. don't know if you spotted that. People say they are blessed if, if things have gone well, if they've been successful, if they've been asked to do something and they feel honoured or privileged. It's been a blessing to serve in this way, whatever it might be. I feel so blessed, says the minor D-list celebrities. They open the local waitrose or whatever it might be. I feel blessed is a concept or idea that's used quite a lot. But I think here, at least in the eyes of the world, it's completely turned on its head. It's completely different. Outwardly, these individuals that Jesus is describing, these followers of this king, don't look honored or esteemed or respected or admired. They don't look very blessed, at least as the world would describe it. It feels like the wrong way around. So what kind of blessed is this blessed? What is Jesus getting at? Well, to be honest, the word, is a, the word is a slightly slippery one. It kind of means happy, but not in a superficial, subjective, feelings-type way, happy. It's more of an objective, reality-type way. It's what God thinks about them. It's what he perceives them to be. It almost means congratulations to the poor in spirit, says God. Fortunate are those who mourn. Favoured by God are the meek. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they're living the life they were meant to live. Because this is life as it was God intended. And of course, make no mistake, it was countercultural then. And it's very countercultural now. And for us, it might not be how everyone thinks of blessing, how they define it, the definition they're working from, but we need to trust Jesus that what he's saying is true and he knows best. And in God's eyes, the folk who are blessed are people who are part of this kingdom of Jesus. And there are no exceptions. We're to be those who are poor in spirit. It's not an optional extra. It's not something just for the super spiritual. It's for every one of us. Why does it come first? I think it's no accident that verse 3 begins the Beatitudes. This is the foundational bedrock upon which we must build. If you cycle through town at the moment... 
thinking particularly on Park Street, there are some huge, impressive university buildings currently being constructed, but they're still on the foundations. They're still working below ground. And unless you get the underpinnings right, unless you get the foundations right, then you can't build. It won't work. And so Jesus says, you can't be filled unless you're at first empty. And you know that you're empty. But what is poor in spirit? I've slightly skirted around it. What is it? Well, how about this as an angle? Sometimes people say to us, they say Christianity is a crutch for people who can't make it on their own. Have you ever had that chat? I know my aunts, at least in years gone by, used to think that and say that. Maybe you've had those conversations with people in your family or people on your course or on your street or in the office or whatever it might be. But the answer from this verse, I think, is yes. Yes. Yes, it is a crutch. Of course it is. But let's work through that objection slightly. Why is the thought that the Christian faith is a crutch even considered to be a valid criticism? Why is that even something bad? What is wrong with crutches? Not quite a crutch. Imagine it is. I think crutches are good things, aren't they? They're useful things, they're necessary things. Why does a crutch become a bad thing when we're thinking about the Christian faith? Why is that a criticism? Well, surely it's because we don't want to see ourselves as needing a crutch. Crutches are for people who have got broken ankles or dodgy knees or snapped legs or ingrowing toenails or whatever it might be. But crutches are for people who know that they can't cope, that they can't do it on their own. And yet we want to think we're okay and we say, yeah, we're fine, thanks, and we've got it sorted and we don't need any help. And, and in public, we're, yeah, I'm okay, thank you. And then in private, there are tears and pain and unhelpful strategies to deal with the fact that we're not okay. We don't want to admit that we need a crutch. Put it down. Do you see why that is a valid criticism in the eyes of the world? Because the emphasis that we put on self-reliance and self-esteem and self-confidence and self-expression and the motivational posters with, with beautiful mountains and sunsets and people cl climbing up rock faces and they shout confidently at us that all we need to do is believe in ourselves. In fact, here are some actual phrases from posters. Believe in yourself and all that you are, know that there is something inside you that is greater than any obstacle. Believe in yourself, follow your dreams and don't give up. If you believe in yourself, anything is possible. To be a winner, you have to believe in yourself when no one else will. So do you see the world's answer? The world's answer is look inwards, look inwards and find the treasure inside you. Believe in yourself. Search for the hero inside yourself. The ability to achieve your dreams comes from within, says the world. Jesus says that's rubbish. The answer from Jesus is the absolute opposite. Poverty of spirit is where the kingdom begins, 
That's where true kingdom greatness begins. And this poverty of spirit then is someone's attitude towards themselves. It's a sense of powerlessness in ourselves. It's a sense of the spiritual bankruptcy and helplessness before God. It's a sense of moral uncleanness before him. Personal unworthiness. It's a sense that if there's any joy or, or life to be found, it will have to be all of God and all of his grace. That is poverty of spirit. It's David. Knowing that he is looking down the barrel of a gun. And he cannot do it himself. John Piper explains it like this. He says, the reason I say it is a a sense of powerlessness or a sense of bankruptcy or a sense of uncleanness, a sense of unworthiness, is that objectively speaking, everybody is poor in spirit. Everybody, whether they sense it or not, is powerless without God and bankrupt and helpless and unclean and unworthy. But not everybody is blessed. So it's having the understanding of who we are and who he is. Maybe it helps to switch it on its head. Maybe Jesus would say, with perhaps the religious leaders of his, of his day, not blessed, not favoured by God, are the arrogant, the puffed up, the self-sufficient, the self-assured, the proud, those who think they are fine on their own. But blessed by God are those who know they're bankrupt and powerless. Who, who know what they're really like and what he's really like. Those who are prepared to lose their pretense. To stop protesting. And to look to him. And if it's true that this one is foundational, if it's true that this... This emptying needs to come first. That the sermon starts off in this way for a reason. And suddenly as you read the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, it's not so much something that you or I can do in our own strength. Rules that we're to tick. Behaviours that we're to implement. a, A moral code even that we're to admire or try to grasp onto. Because those things are all external things. And yet the sermon becomes much more about internal things. The attitude of our heart and how we relate to God. It's a sermon for the poor in spirit, for those who know their bankruptcy, their uncleanness, their neediness before him. And prepared to be honest about that. And Jesus says... The poor in spirit are blessed. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, if you're honest, if you're honest with yourself and you're honest with your heart, and you stop wearing the mask and you stop pretending, then then you can enter God's kingdom. And did you notice, as Alice read it so brilliantly for us, that it is to be enjoyed both in the now... And in the future. Did you spot that? So verse 3 and verse 10. Have a look. The bookends, if you like, of the core Beatitudes. They are all promises now. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In verse 3 and again verse 10. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's present tense. But then from verse 4 to 9. The middle bit. 
That's all future. The insides are all future. They will be comforted. They will inherit. They will be filled. And he goes on. So it starts now. It's present tense now, but it's future as well. It's a life that has begun, but because he's conquered death, it will continue. It's for Monday morning in the office and Wednesday afternoon at school or whatever it might be for you. But it's for more than that. It's forever, this kingdom. Now, some people say, well, I think it's much more about the future because he's talking about the kingdom of heaven in verse 3. And heaven is what happens after you die, they say. So it must be more of what's to come. It must be a future thing in mind. But I'm not sure that quite works. I take it he simply means a place where God is seen and recognized as being in charge, as being the king. Have a glance back again to 4 verse 17. See what Jesus says as he starts this sermon. As he's preaching to the people there. Do you see, he says, the kingdom of heaven has come near. And why has it come near? Because the king has come near. And how do we know the king has come? Well, we know he's come because he's speaking with authority, firstly. So in uh, verse 15 and 16, he, he quotes this prophecy from Isaiah 9, which in context is about freedom from oppression. It's about a, a divine person who's going to come and rule. It's someone from the line of David. And this man has come and is talking about himself in those terms. And then people start following him and people start repenting. He's acting like he's in charge with his words. So the king has come because he's a man with authority to speak. But it's not just speech as well, it's action, isn't it? He heals these people with a touch. Here is God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven physically manifest on earth here is the brokenness of the world marred by sin and rebellion being being undone and put to rights just glimpses of what will be for eternity beautiful mesmerizing glimpses of the world as it was made to be the kingdom of heaven breaking into the now turned back to god again made right by god again if you enter the kingdom says jesus if you're prepared to know that you're morally bankrupt and you can't do it on your own and you can't earn it and you can't tick the boxes and be like the Pharisees and think you're in. But again, though, this isn't really a new idea. This shouldn't surprise us. There's a sense in which they should be absolutely what we expect as Jesus comes to teach. Because very clearly, the pattern of Scripture is that this is the way God has always done things. You can trace it. The people of God, the people whom God has used, have never been the self-assured and self-confident before him. Just kind of skip over the Bible overview with me and just pick up some people in your mind. Think of Abraham. Abraham, chapter 18, 27. Abraham says, this is uh, Genesis 18, verse 27. Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, he says. Or Moses. When the Lord calls Moses to come and lead the people, there is objection after objection and excuse after excuse. And it ends like this in Exodus 4. It's, it's classic. Moses says to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. 
The Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, and I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses says, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Or Gideon. Judges 6, pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Or the prophet Isaiah, as he comes before the Lord, woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And then much later in his prophecy, chapter 57, verse 15, God says through him, I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. Or think of Peter. Think of Peter in the New Testament, who denies his Lord, who is humbled and brought very low and then reinstated by Jesus after the resurrection. If we think that poverty of spirit is a new or interesting idea for this reign of King Jesus, if we're overly surprised by the fact that he starts his sermon in this way, Maybe we've missed this thread going through the Bible. God's people have always been marked by poverty of spirits who knew they were nothing without God. And yet, my friends, I think here is the challenge for us today. Here is the issue for you and me. It is one simple verse. One simple verse. But it's not simple, is it? It's not simple. Not in day-to-day life. I take it being poor in spirit is likely something that we can all relate to. But I wonder if it's just at certain times. Maybe that's just me. So maybe you're in church and you sing of our Lord and you see just a glimpse of who he is. Or you're reading the scriptures and he just comes alive and you're humbled and brought low and almost Isaiah-like, we we sense something of our unworthiness. But then the service ends and you have a bit of coffee at the end of the service and you jump in the car and drive back home and you slide back into autopilot. Normal life. Pride slips back in again and it's the same moans and grumbles and bickering and quarrels and squabbles and how dare they treat me like that why do they care what I think why does no one listen to me so I guess our question is or at least my question is practically how do we maintain this kind of poverty of spirit how does it become a thing right through the week rather than just kind of snatches and glimpses? How do we get this kind of mindset that we have a father who is there and what he is really like and what we are really like and our our bankruptcy and, and that Jesus is the king and that we're not the king? How do we stop ourselves from sleepwalking through life in such a way that that we're more characterized by our own self-sufficiency than our poverty of spirit? I think it's a good question. I hope it's not just my question, or else this is awkward. But I think it happens in thousands of imperceptible ways, doesn't it? Naturally, we we don't want to listen to God. 
We don't want to do things his way. We do think we know best. We do think we're okay without him. Naturally, we follow Adam and Eve. Pride is the battle for the people of God. But I think we get an answer. And I think we get something of an answer as the Sermon on the Mount continues. I think there is something of a jarring thread right the way through the Sermon on the Mount. I think there's this painful and challenging question, but it's one that we can't avoid. It's a thread that humbles us and that naturally says, by yourself, you can't do this. Naturally, Jesus says, you can't do this as he preaches this sermon. Let me give you some examples, just a couple of examples. Have a glance over at the rest of chapter 5. And you see that little refrain that Jesus comes up with. Um, Verse 22 is an example. But you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. He raises the bar, I take it, to an almost impossible standard to show us that naturally we can't do it. Naturally we, we are bankrupt and we are helpless. So you've heard that it was said, don't murder, verse 22. But I tell you, anyone who's angry with a brother or sister, will be subject to judgment. Angry? Ouch. Well, you've heard that it was said, don't murder, verse 28, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus, are you serious? Or verse 48, the icing on the cake, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I think the idea of perfection is something of kind of completeness and generosity within the word. But I take it Jesus raises the bar in such a way to show us naturally we can't do it. And so we find ourselves back at the start, 5 verse 3 again, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're humbled. Or secondly, chapter 6. The sermon continues and he gets practical and starts thinking about ideas of spirituality and prayer. He teaches his disciples to pray and there are all kinds of ideas in there. But the one just to focus in on for now is this idea of humble dependency. It's the fact that they've got to look to their father in heaven. That they must look to him or that they needn't be anxious about life because they have a father who cares for them. They have to be a people who are dependent, and that's okay. He humbles them. And so the question for us is, what happens when we are humbled by God? Maybe chapter 5, you realise afresh your sin before him. The depths of your sin. Or chapter 6, you realise your dependency upon him. What do you do at those points? Because I think here's the problem. I think often when we're humbled, we don't turn back to him. We turn our backs on him. We turn away from him far too easily. It's like we're at a T-junction and, and, and he humbles us and we recognize these things. We recognize the depths of our sin or our dependency. And, and yet sin hardens us. And we forget what he's like. And we think he's going to rub our noses in it and make us pay for it. 
make us grovel before him. And we forget he's our kind father who, who loves it when we express our dependence because he loves to give us good things. He loves to forgive. He's given us his son. He's shown us the grace sufficient that we need. And yet you see the depths of our sin and the dependency upon him too easily turn us from him rather than towards him. Our sin and our failure hardens us rather than humbling us. That's what we saw, wasn't it, with the numbers generation? They may have intermittently turned back to God, but so much of the time they turned from him. They hardened their hearts to stop listening. And so do you see, rather than humbling us, rather than being poor in spirit, rather than being like our king, we easily turn from him and try and do things in our own strength. And that is where we must end. We must end focusing on this king. This king who's come and sat down and opened his mouth and he's speaking to them. Because this King Jesus is the one who had every right, in a sense, not to be poor in spirit. Do you get that? He deserved worship. He deserved glory and honour. And yet he submits himself to the will of his Father. Have a listen to some familiar verses, I'm sure, from Philippians 2. Jesus making himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. But at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Did you see as we finish, the kingdom is made of people who look like their king, willing to empty themselves for the will of their father. Let's pray. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Our Father in heaven, we pray that we might see have that sense of how poor in spirit we are before you. How, how bankrupt, how helpless, how hopeless. And so might we turn to the Lord Jesus. Might we listen to the words of our King and see that we are members of your kingdom, not because of what we can do or what we bring, but because of his kindness. Lord, where we get these glimpses of the depths of our sin, perhaps even this week, or, or our dependency upon you, would these things not harden us, but would they humble us and turn us back to you? In your son's name we pray. Amen.